0: It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into mysteries about true histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. When
1: I'm teaching my student teachers, I always say to them, we have to remember that children are humans and they have rights. And we have to allow them to show up in their full humanity, whatever that means. And so we want to we want to use this framework so that they can show up in their full humanity.
0: Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. My guest today is Heather Clark, a neurodivergent Black Afro-Caribbean learning advocate. Through Heather's learning advocacy business, she consults with parents and guardians to help them with the process of educational evaluations and the creation and implementation of IEPs and 504 plans. She has over 20 years of experience working as a teacher in the field of educational justice and policy and working with children and families of children with disabilities. She's also an early childhood and special education adjunct professor at Queens College CUNY and field mentor to student teachers at NYU. Heather also helps administer several New York City area advocacy groups focusing on addressing anti-Black racism, dismantling white supremacy, and educational needs in the community. During our conversation, we talked about Heather's definition for ableism and how it creates barriers for our children's individuality, how adultification bias affects Black children, and how universal design for learning can allow students with different skills to achieve mastery of the curriculum. Heather also shared suggestions for parents who want to be part of dismantling ableism by advocating for not only their children, but all children. If you want to dive deeper into my conversation with Heather, please check out the show notes page on Till Parenting. You'll find a bullet pointed list of key takeaways, a transcript for the whole episode, links to all the resources mentioned, and a podcast player with the episode broken down into chapters so you can easily find the information you're looking to re-listen to. This week's episode can be found at TiltParenting.com slash session 276, or just go to Tilt Parenting, click on the podcast tab on the top menu and find this episode. Lastly, if you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed with changing schedules, a family and in-law dynamics, big expectations, and tricky kid energy that can happen this time of year, and you'd love a giant reset button so you can wipe the slate clean and start fresh check out my new mini course, The Emergency Reset. I created this to help you get out of a negative parent-child cycle and prevent you from getting dragged back into that cycle moving forward. It's all about creating new energy, a new dynamic, and new resolve to show up for ourselves and our kids in a way that feels so much better. If you could use some extra support right now and help setting yourself up for a smoother holiday season, check out The Emergency Reset. To learn more, just go to TiltParenting.com slash emergency reset. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Heather. Hey, Heather, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm honored to be here.
0: Yeah. And as we were just uh, talking, we're practically neighbors. So in another day and age, we could be doing this in person, but we will stick with, with virtual for now. So I would love if you could just start our conversation by telling us a little bit about your personal story. So I've, I've read your formal bio and we know about kind of your professional work in the world, but maybe tell us about how you got into doing the work and your, your why for what you do. So the why I can, I have to
1: say that it's deeply personal for me. I was that black neurodiverse girl who, you know, did well academically, but suffered terribly with anxiety um, to the point where I was physically sick every day before I went to school. I dealt with, you know, adultification bias in my school, anti-Black racism. I basically white-knuckled my way through most of elementary and middle school middle school especially, um, and masked my differences so that no one could really tell what was going on. And I don't want any other child to go through what I went through. I don't want anyone to deal with that type of lack of cultural competency, that extreme ableism, any kind of ableism, um, the lack of understanding of how different brains um, work, different emotions in school, the racism. And so it's really important for me to advocate for students to be seen in their full human selves, whatever that may be, learning differences, their full diversity, and, and how they learn their, their culture, their race, their gender identity, their religion, their languages they speak, the dialects they speak, it all has to be valued. Uh, it all has to be seen as strengths as opposed to as deficits. It's the exact opposite of what I experienced. And that's really the place that I'm coming from.
0: I will say I've never heard the term adultification bias. Can you define that? It's a phenomenon that's very particular to black children and
1: black girls or black non male children where we are perceived as older because of our race. So, if something happens, um, and this is, you know, there's evidence and data behind this, we're punished much harsher than our white peers or our non black peers. So, for example, If something happened in, like, let's say in fifth grade, in my fifth grade class, um, and I remember this very particularly happening in my fifth grade class, um, something happened between me and a non-black child, I was punished much more severely than the non-black child because I was black. And I remember very specifically being told by my teacher, I'm punishing you more harshly because you're black. I mean, they, they weren't even like shy about it at the school. It's a phenomenon that's seen over and over again, and it starts as young as preschool. Black children in preschool are three to four times more likely to be punished, disciplined, and expelled than their white and non-Black peers for the same behavior. And really, we're talking about childhood behavior, right? Like, we have four- and five-year-old Black children who are walked out of school in handcuffs, I cannot imagine anything that a four or five-year-old can do that would warrant them being arrested and handcuffed and taken out of a school in a police vehicle. And this is a huge problem in our city, a huge problem. This is one one of the, the biggest things that I do my advocacy on. And how that relates to, to ableism, right? Like if these kids have disabilities, what kind of disabilities do they have? And how Black children are more likely to be labeled as emotionally disturbed as opposed to having autism or ADHD, whereas their white peers would be labeled as having autism or ADHD for the same behavior.
0: Thank you for, for sharing that. And this, uh, I'll say just for listeners too, be sure that you listen to some of the other episodes from this season. I actually just interviewed Morena K Kiwa Anaiwu, if I'm saying her name correctly, uh, she is an autistic advocate. And we talked a lot about that specifically, the late diagnosis of black and brown children with autism. And, and we've talked about that with ADHD as well. And it's behavioral as opposed to it's pervasive and very much so I know in New York city and the, the biggest school district, I think in the United States, it is the biggest. Yeah. So you mentioned the word ableism and this may feel like it's going back to one hundred and one. and certainly we've discussed ableism in many episodes, but I don't know that we've ever actually just defined what exactly it is and how it shows up. Can you, can you give us a definition for that? I mean,
1: there's obviously the Webster definition, which I won't read, and then there's my definition. And for me, ableism is the perception that there really is only one type of body, one type of mind, one type of being, one type of emotional way of being that is right. It's generally kind of like you have one type of way of being as a human that's considered right, and every other way that differs or differs from that or veers from that in any other way must be fixed, right? So it's sort of like the medical way, like your way has to be fixed. And so instead of removing barriers so that someone who has a brain that functions differently or who has a body that functions differently um, can thrive, we live in a society that says, Your body is different, so it must be fixed. There's something wrong with your body. Your brain functions differently. There's something wrong with your brain. Your brain must be fixed. There's something inherently wrong with you. So that to me is ableism. It's this view that if anything about you is just different from the quote-unquote norm, and who defines the norm, um, you have to be fixed. That to me is really gets to the essence of what ableism is.
0: Yeah, that's a great definition. And it feels so huge. Yeah, it feels so huge.
1: It shows up really in everything in so many ways.
0: Yeah, which is why this work that you're doing that, you know, so many of our listeners are doing in different ways, trying to dismantle it. And even if it's just in our family or our close-knit circle of friends, our schools, it all matters but it it will take all of us really, I think, to ultimately dismantle it. And I'm wondering, I I know a lot of your work is focused in the schools. Tell us a little bit more about how you're actually working to combat ableism in the school community. One of the
1: key things that I do is that I work with parents. A lot of parents will hire me as an advocate so that I can help run workshops on how we can dismantle ableism in their schools, um, how teachers can create new systems of learning that focus on universal design for learning. So instead of creating a lesson plan, like um, a literacy plan, and then attaching an accommodation or modification to it, we would talk about how we can build a lesson plan that is completely universally designed. So it would have multiple means and ways of accessing the curriculum and multiple means and ways of children to show that they have mastery of the curriculum. So that's the key. It has to have multiple ways of showing the curriculum so the teacher can can show the curriculum multiple ways, not just one way of showing the curriculum, not just two, but multiple ways. And then multiple ways for the teacher to actually assess the student's knowledge. So for example, I work, I work primarily with early childhood, but I also have experience, you know, in, in elementary. And I I teach undergraduate and graduate classes at CUNY. So, for example, I was working with some of my student teachers and I was saying, like, how can we do a lesson on community helpers for social studies? And you have a student, maybe they only want to work with blocks. So you could have a student model to make the community with blocks. Like, for example, make one student who perhaps has different fine motor skills and they can draw and another student can act it out with puppets, but they're all showing you different ways, community helpers. That's just like one example.
0: Yeah. Super interesting. And this is, we've talked about this, especially when we've had conversations about twice exceptional students, because they often have so many strengths that are completely untapped and don't get a chance to share their knowledge in the way that they are Most comfortable doing. And so I'm really interested in learning more about universal design for learning. So, is that a very specific framework? I mean, is that its own curriculum or is that more of a concept? It's not its own curriculum, it is a very specific framework. And we
1: have to really advocate that all schools use it because it's really the best form of teaching. We see universal design in building, right? So in walking the street, we have the cutouts. So the cutouts are for people with mobility differences. So someone with a wheelchair, someone who's using, they have a broken leg. But if you're pushing a baby in a stroller, you can also use it. Or a laundry, like I just think of New York, you're going down with your laundry or um, your carriage full of groceries. You're also using that cutout on the street you know? So it's universally designed. Multiple people are using it, not someone just with mobility issues, but it was designed initially for that.
0: But it's universally
1: designed, so many people are using it.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones whatever the reason I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well being of your entire body. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags, or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit parenting. That's com slash parenting. Again, that's com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. I think about this and I, of course, I'm like, yes, that makes perfect sense. And then I'm like, there are so many barriers, right? I'm sure that there are private schools who who this is kind of the way that they operate. But tell me what the reception is like as an advocate for getting this into classrooms. Like, what does it involve? What do the teachers need to be able to do? Yeah, I'd love to just know more about that.
1: One of the, the, the biggest barriers is time and the amount of students in the classroom. So- there's too many students in public school classrooms, particularly in New York, right? If you're, you have a second grade class with 29 to 32 kids, it's too many students. And then time. We are spending way too much time doing standardized testing, which is not universally designed. Standardized testing is exactly the opposite of universal design for learning. It's standardized. How is it universally designed for learning? It's not at all. It's one type of assessment and usually they're standardized to kids in middle America. So white, upper middle class in Ohio or Idaho or something. You know, They're asking questions about kids who, I remember when I was teaching in Queens, when I was teaching elementary school in Queens in, in Jackson Heights, they were asking kids about chimneys and skiing and galoshes. My kids in Queens couldn't tell you about that, but they could tell you you know, how to do the laundry in a laundromat, how to go shopping at the bodega, you know, how to count money. So these, these questions are not fair. Um, they're not culturally competent and they're not universally designed. So those are the really big things, things that I, you know, that I see. The other thing that I do that's a big part of my work is parents hire me as a private advocate for IEP and 504 services. So I go in and when the when the parents want IEP services, they hire me to come in and sit in as an advocate to fight for the right IEP services and placements for their child. To make sure their child is getting their least restrictive environment and their appropriate services.
0: Yeah, and I imagine too then is part of the accommodations for the IEP or the 504 based on this idea of universal design and yeah and so are you able to get those accommodations do you get a lot of pushback i do get a lot of pushback because for some teachers
1: they've literally never heard of this you know they've never it's just they've just never heard of it and some are willing but their hands are tied so it's it's a constant push and pull like we will do it where we're able but you know when standardized testing comes we have 3 weeks of standardized testing so we have to do standardized testing. And so we can't make during the ELA tests, we can't universally design those three weeks of ELA. It's three weeks of ELA or whatever it is.
0: It just sounds soul-sucking. It is soul-sucking. And it's soul-sucking for the teachers too. So let's talk about ages. I'm just wondering with the, this universal design for learning, you mentioned that you're mostly involved in early education and some elementary. Is this movement to have this incorporated in classrooms go all the way up through high school? What does it look like at different ages? Definitely. It,
1: it's, I mean, you can have portfolio assessments. I use it in my, in my graduate school and undergraduate courses that I teach. I have students who make me virtual assignments, who um, make me YouTube channels. I have students who make me Bitmojis. Just, I'm just giving you examples of some of the work that I have for my graduate students that I have do. You know, because I believe that. First of all, I don't believe that students should have to disclose if they have a disability, right? Regardless of what a university's policy is, because I think that's personal information. But also, I just think it's good teaching and its best practices right we want to have best practices and i believe that for me teaching is also it's also um it's like it's a part of like civil rights you know and when i'm teaching my student teachers i always say to them we have to remember that children are humans and w- they have rights and we have to allow them to show up in their full humanity whatever that means and so we want to We want to use this framework so that they can show up in their full humanity. And so it can be used throughout high school because there's multiple ways that a high school student can show you that they understand math besides a standardized test or understand literacy besides a standardized test. You know, whether they're acting out a play or whether they're balancing a checkbook. I mean, think about all the real world experiences in their life where they're going to have to use math and literacy besides just a standardized test.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, I homeschooled my child for, I think it was six years. And essentially, this is what we did. You know, if there was a project, I would give them options, like you could do a video, you could do a PowerPoint, you could do a piece of art, you could, you know, it was just wonderful that I had that flexibility and freedom to do that. So I'm wondering, you've been doing this work for a while. Are you seeing momentum? Are you seeing shifting of mindsets? Of you know, Are you seeing this actually starting to, to happen? Because I imagine that every success, every time you've gotten a teacher to embrace this, or you've gotten that accommodation in, that it's, it's continuing to pave the way.
1: I am. Um, and especially among parents, I'm really seeing parents are starting to really say, no, we're not taking this anymore. I help admin a, a local education group in my, in my educational district, and we've really been pushing back against homework because there's no evidence that homework for elementary school has any benefit. So one of the big things that I, I said was, you know, push back on homework. Let's all push back on homework and let's advocate for more play. We need to have more play. So one thing that we've really pushed back on was homework, more play, and behavior charts. Those are the three things that I'm really, really pushing forward. The next thing that we're working on is the IEP compliance. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, which is still going on, we've had a lot of non-compliant IEPs. So when we're talking about IEPs, we have to remember those are federal documents. And so when a child's IEP is not met, their civil rights are being violated. So if a child is supposed to get three times 30 minutes of speech or OT or counseling or whatever it is, and they're not getting it, they're essentially not getting their civil rights met because they need those therapies. So this is a big thing that we're, we're really focusing on, especially for our Black and Brown students. And the pipeline for evaluations is so backed up. Right now, we have kids who aren't even getting bust. They're still not getting bust at all. So we are really trying to focus more on moving away from this behaviorism toward universal design for learning. But there's still a lot of pushback from the behaviorists, a lot. I have to admit <laughs> I did get into, you know, a bit of a email exchange that got a bit heated between a behaviorist in a in a special needs coalition and myself. But there were a lot of people who came out on my side and, and admitted that, you know, agreed with me that, you know, the evidence is there that it, it does not work and we need more universal design for learning and behaviorism is particularly har- harmful to black and brown children. Even for children, there was kind of a a a perception that this person works in poor neighborhoods with black and brown children and they're a, a BCBA and they're helping these children and Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, it's really not about saviorism here. It's about understanding that these children have agency. We have to understand that they bring richness and knowledge no matter what you perceive that they bring. And no matter what a person's bodily functions are or whether they have control of certain functions, it still doesn't mean that they cannot thrive or show up in their full humanity. We have to get rid of that idea. That is completely ableistic. We have to get rid of that idea. That labels of high functioning, low functioning. Those are all our ideas about how we view they function in our ableistic society as opposed to whether we're removing barriers so that they can thrive.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. If you listen to the show, you probably know that at least 1 in 5 children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately 1 in 2 women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different. So a one size fits all approach to hair growth isn't gonna cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles, like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. obviously, there are so many parents who get new information about their child, or they're just doing the best they can, right? And they're told by the classroom. And I think about when when my child was in first grade, it was all sticker charts, stars, earning, like that was, and it was all about classroom management. It was all about compliance and never felt good. But I, at the time was like, well, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do because otherwise this child's going to get kicked out of school. And then what do I do? I'm hoping that this conversation is sparking some parents to know that we don't have to go along with these recommendations and that they're problematic. And I'm wondering if the time that we've had in COVID and with remote learning and, 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 the way that that has disrupted these systems in some way, it, has that created opportunities for maybe expanded thinking about this or, or looking at classroom management in a new way, or do you think we're defaulting back to pre pandemic? I think for
1: parents, it's definitely um, expanded thinking on that as I think it's given parents a bird's eye view of what's gone on. Um, I know sp- I know, especially for parents of color, and I have to always default to that because that's where I'm coming from as a Black mom, you know, we've seen things we would have maybe never seen before, right? The little microaggressions and the comments and things like that, that maybe we've never seen before. So I definitely feel like it gave me a bird's eye view that maybe I would not have gotten before. When I was a classroom teacher, I never used those types of things. I just, I didn't use them. And it wasn't even like I said, I'm not going to use these because I think they're terrible. I just, I just didn't see the need. Intrinsically, I just don't, I don't like the idea of, of assigning worth to a star. There's something just inherently wrong with that. A child is good because they're a child. If you want to discuss if the ch- if someone made a poor choice that maybe wasn't the right choice at that moment, that's a different conversation. There's too much emotion that is attached to certain actions and behaviors. And I do, I am fearful that there is so much deficit language going on now that kids are back in the classroom. Learning loss, gaps, behavior. I am very fearful about that because I heard it in my own older child's back to school meeting Zoom last week. And I sent an email today, a very strong email today to the social worker. So I'm sure that they're like, oh no. I mean, I'm always that mom. So I don't even care. I'm always that mom. I was like, this is unacceptable. So much deficit language. You know, this is just, I am so upset because I was really, I was livid. I was just livid. And I encourage parents to not accept that because when you hold the line, you're not doing it just for your child. You're doing it for all children. Make it like general like that too. Say our children are not deficits. Our children are not blank slates to be written on. Our children are not empty vessels to be filled. Our children come with a wealth of richness and they are to be guided. Teachers are guides. Parents are guides. That's my belief. That is my belief. That is what we are. We are their guides. That's it. I heard a person say the teacher may be the only good role model that they have. And I was just like, that is the most horrible thing I've ever heard. Like, why are you discounting the people that the child may have in the home, in their community, in their neighborhood? Why are you making assumptions about these children's lives? So I do think that we as parents and guardians have to be pushing back on these ideas that because school is becoming and has for a long time become way too much like a prison. It is way too much about compliance.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's about getting them through, getting them to the next thing, as opposed. And, and I, I often think of that, especially with our neurodivergent kids. I say all the time, like yeah, this sucks, and part of this is getting through it so that you can get to the good stuff, but our kids deserve to not have to wait. To get to the good stuff and the damage that can happen while they're waiting can be really hard to overcome.
1: And also, look at what has happened in the meantime in these last 20, 30 years. All of this compliance, 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 teaching to the test, we have an entire generation of people who don't know how to look at, they think they can go on youtube and now they understand research and are not critical thinkers i don't see that critical think those critical thinking skills being taught and the lack of play is
0: is also directly tied to that i agree 100% so i really like the language you use in terms of parents and educators being guides for our kids and and also the suggestions for how parents can push back and not just for their own child, but for all of us, that our language, that that group language. Are there any other suggestions you have for parents who are listening and who really want to be a part of dismantling ableism, whether it is in their PTA or their school or their neighborhood? I have so many suggestions, but I want to give like
1: simple, actionable steps. I think it's really important that we encourage workshops on universal design for learning. When there's an opportunity for ICT classes, if there's such a thing as collaborative team teaching classes or integrated classes in your school, that you look at those classes with joy. If anybody is disparaging those types of classes, that you nip that right in the bud because whenever i see that type of discussion on a in a facebook group in a whatsapp group in a thread on the playground it just breaks my heart to think that somebody would want to be in a class with my kid or any child with a 504 plan or an iep kids learn best when they're amongst diversity all kids so encourage those types of settings and i encourage those integrated classes Encourage workshops on universal design for learning at work on getting rid of those behavior charts.
0: Love that. And is there a specific resource or place to, for parents listening who want to learn more about universal design learning? Is there like a home online to find out about workshops?
1: I mean, they can Google it. They could also come to my Instagram. I think you have all the links There's a lot of good resources out there. I would say also the Council on Exceptional Children. NACI has some good resources for the younger children. N-A-E-Y-C. I love them. I love that resource as well. Anything that just really, you know, focusing on like the full humanity of children, encouraging however children are, however they may be, their physicality, intellectually, emotionally whatever differences, gender, race, religion, spirituality, language, we want them to be able to thrive. We want to dismantle barriers so that they can thrive. And universal design for learning is all about that in all of its complexities and intersections. That's why it's so powerful
0: It sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to be doing more exploration after our conversation and listeners, I will include links that we just talked about, including where you can connect with Heather on the show notes page. But if I, I'm sure I'll find some really good articles. So I'll post them on the show notes page too. So check that out. If you want to learn more, any last thoughts before we say goodbye, something you want to leave parents with?
1: I want parents to know that your children are wonderfully designed. They're wonderfully designed and they're perfect just the way they are. So meet them where they are and support them so that they can thrive. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for the work that you're doing. You sound like you're very busy and I know you're a mama. You got a lot going on. So just thank you for being such a powerful advocate for so many children. It's amazing.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm honored to be a part of your podcast. Thank you for all the work you're doing as well.
0: You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter, visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com.